This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sector Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And this episode is sponsored by 26 Digital, a full-service agency that offers integrated marketing solutions exclusively to destination marketing organizations and members of the travel, tourism, and hospitality sector. Dave Serino, Brian Matson, and the 26 team assist DMOs with developing measurable and successful digital marketing strategies through specialized solutions to elevate the overall understanding, strategic direction, and tactical implementation of your campaigns. You can learn more at 26Digital all letters, no numbers, dot com. And now onto our show, Gary Sherwin, CDME APR, has served as president and CEO of Newport Beach and Company since 2013, and its tourism business unit visit Newport Beach since 2006. He is responsible for overseeing the community marketing organization promoting Newport Beach, California as a premier luxury destination. Gary served as chair of Destinations International, the trade association for global destination marketing organizations. He's also past chair of the Orange County Visitor Association and the past chair of the California Travel Association, which is the state's leading umbrella tourism advocacy organization. He also sits on the board of directors for U.S. Travel and before Newport Beach, Gary worked for DMOs in Los Angeles and in Palm Springs. Gary Sherwin, welcome to DMOU. Hey, Bill. Great to be with you. It goes without saying that it's been a crazy couple of months for us all. Uh, Before we get started with your three questions in the bonus round, tell us how you and your team are doing and what are the prospects for a luxury destination going forward? Well, uh, first, thank you for uh, asking me to join you and and congratulations on 25 years. (laughs) Business. <laughs> you. uh, your voice is a very important one, and I hope we got at least another 25 years out of you going forward. I'll go for that. That's good. We need you. <laughs> Obviously, this has just been um, unprecedented is, is almost a cliche. Uh, the swiftness of everything really was yeah. amazing. I mean, we left our offices and closed them down the middle of March, fully expecting that we would be back in two weeks. And within days, you just saw everything falling apart so quickly. And we unfortunately, you know, were faced with the realities that we were going to, you know, have to lay off people, which we did about a third of our staff. We furloughed others and uh, were very much like a lot of DMOs out there Mm. and and had to make some very quick and painful decisions. And uh, we've been able to do that, and we've got a pathway going forward. But I, I do worry about our business because I know there are a lot of DMOs that won't survive this. We are fortunate in the sense that we had a reserve account, and we could sustain ourselves uh, for a fairly long amount of time, even if we don't get funding. But a lot of DMOs won't. So it's it's a sobering period, and just trying to figure out every day you get up trying to navigate this thing, and it is you know the ultimate puzzle in your head how to work it out, because none of us obviously have dealt with this before. So for a luxury destination, and we've been talking to a few others uh, around the country, and there is a, and maybe it's it's hope, and maybe it's not real, but those who have the resources to travel, who are not being hit financially quite as hard as, let's say, you know, Joe and Jill Public, one would think that they'll get back on the horse and they will come back to luxury destinations first. What are you hearing and what are you sensing? 
the big thing for us, of course, was the complete shutdown of international travel. Now, we've got a five-star resort, mm-hmm. uh, the resort at Pelican Hill. It relied a lot on Middle East business. Of course, that went away. Uh, we had a very big presence in the UK. That's gone away. China, of course. So, you know, a lot of our affluent international is gone. Now we're relying, like everybody else, on the drive market. I'm trying to draw parallels between what happened in the recession and what is happening now. And we actually recovered fairly quickly out of the Great Recession. We did a number of things. I know we're going to talk about them today. But I think that, you know, we were already on the road to getting back on our feet uh, in early 2010. And it's really about knowing your customer and trying to provide a, a good experience for them. Even the ones that are aspirational visitors, they may not be wealthy per se, but they want to escape into that world. And we saw a little bit this weekend. I mean, this Memorial Day was surprisingly strong. We had hotels that had limited service. Uh, some of our biggest hotels Good to hear. only wanted to sell a third of their rooms to promote social distancing, but they sold them all out. They paid full rack rate, um, knowing that there was no spa, no room service, even housekeeping services were limited. But people wanted to be there. They wanted to be part of the experience because they were just so sick and tired of staring at their spouse at home, I guess, for two months. So they wanted to get out. So I'm fairly bullish on it. I actually think there will be a little bit more of a recovery in a certain sector. It won't be nearly as bad as it has been, but it will be a slow slog to kind of get to be where we are. I mean, we were looking at 20 to 30% occupancy and we were celebrating that. Mm -hmm. Bill, when's the last time we celebrated 20, 30%? on occupancy in anything never and we were just delighted this week (laughs) so all right well those listeners that also read our z news and for those who don't you can sign up for your free subscription on the dmopros.com website you know that i went down a path in the may 2020 edition that some may have heard me say but i've never reduced it to print before As we emerge from the ravages of the government's response to COVID-19, there's likely going to be some mergers of community development organizations because of really scarce financial resources. Now, in the past, when that has happened around the country, destination marketing typically gets folded up underneath either economic development or chambers of commerce as a, you know, let's all come together and let's save money and let's, you know, not duplicate administrative expense. And it, it sounds good on the on the surface, but it never works out very well. Frankly, it's just ass backwards. So as soon as I posted it up, I thought to myself, I got to call Gary because you did something really very similar after the last recession. And to this day, I truly believe you have one of the most unique organizational structures in the nation. And it's also one that I'm kind of surprised that other destinations and communities haven't adopted. And maybe it's because business was so good once we came back from the last recession that people went, eh, I'll get to it later. Well, I think with this crisis, your structure is going to be positioned to resonate a lot more effectively. So tell us the genesis story of Newport Beach and Company. Well, you know, this is following on Rahm Emanuel's, the former mayor of Chicago and Obama's chief of staff, is axiom, never let a good crisis go to waste. And during the last recession, our city, which actually is it's a fairly well-funded city, they had over, you know, still do over 50 million reserves. Our city manager, though, said, well, you know, we've got to pare down a little bit. And they had an economic development department. 
And they were thinking, well, what is really economic development in a community like Newport Beach? We're certainly not looking for Costco's or Walmarts, and we don't have a whole lot of neighborhoods that are in need of you know, significant reinvention. That's the fortunate thing we have in our kind of community. And I know we're very fortunate to have that because mm-hmm. not a lot of communities can say that. But in our case, the city manager was saying, well, maybe economic development looks a little different in our city. Maybe really what it is is maximizing the collective assets of the community without compromising the quality of life for residents. And that really falls into our neck of the woods. And so when I was having a a discussion with our then mayor, he said, well, you know, we're probably going to get rid of economic development. We're going to lay those folks off because in reality, you're really the economic development entity for the community. But, you know, there's other things going on in town here as well. We have a, a restaurant group. It's a business improvement district. It does marketing. We have neighborhood groups. They're business improvement districts. They needed marketing. We have signature events that are run by our Chamber of Commerce. Our biggest one is the Christmas Boat Parade. We get a lot of national play out of that. That needed more marketing. And so uh, the mayor, and one of the nice things we're also blessed with is our city council is comprised of business-oriented people. They think like business people. That's how they can afford to live in Newport Beach. Mm -hmm. And he was a former CFO of a Fortune 300 company. So we were having coffee one day and he says, you know, maybe you need to really rethink a little about how your organization is set up, because wouldn't it make sense to bring all of this together and find a way to collectively manage and market it under a unified brand umbrella that is all about Newport Beach? And I don't know how you do that operationally. I don't know how you work with the boards of these various groups, but I think in concept, it's a worthy idea. And I thought, well, now that's an intriguing idea. Let's kind of dwell on that. Mm -hmm. When I talked with my board about it, they immediately embraced it. And I will tell you, had it not been for their encouragement, it wouldn't have gone any further. Our board was very visionary and saying, listen, this really shouldn't just be about tourism. What we really need to do is bring all of the assets together, because if we collectively sell Newport Beach as a place, through all of these various touch points, whether it's through dining or special events, the various neighborhoods, as well as tourism, they all work together if we're effective about this. And frankly, it's an original idea only as it pertains to cities. I've always looked at it as the Disney model, right? Here in Anaheim, you know, you have Disneyland, you have California Adventure, you have downtown Disney, you have their hotels. They're not sold in silos. They're all managed under a collective Disney brand. Yeah, right. So what about if we could do that, but do it for a city? And of course, it never been done before. So we spent the next couple of years working with the various boards because our job was not to take over these organizations. It was to be a marketing agency for them. So while we refer to ourselves really as DMOs, we were going to try to change the paradigm and become a CMO, a community marketing organization. And it was really not about power or, you know, usurping authority. It was saying, listen, our space is in marketing. That's something we do really well. And we want to do it under a unified Newport Beach brand. So if you want to work with us, we can provide you services, probably a lot cheaper than what you're doing right now. And we can leverage your efforts with all the other things that we're doing to sell the community. 
And it took a little while. I'm not going to say everyone thought, oh, that's a brilliant idea, because a lot of people, <laughs> you know, a lot of people kind of, whoa, wait a second, what's in it for you? And are we going to still have our autonomy? And, you know, the restaurant group, it's a restaurant board of directors, and they had been doing things for a while, and they were kind of proud of it, although no one really felt that they were super effective at it, but they were still proud of it. So it took a little while to kind of convince them and get them to where they were and where we needed them to be. But it took probably about good three to four years to get the restaurant board to say, yes, we want to work with you. The Chamber of Commerce, yes, we want to work with you. The neighborhood groups, yes, we want to work with you. And then as it's all falling together, I get a call from our city manager saying, hey, I got a curveball I'm going to toss at you. As we do this restructuring, we have the city's TV station. We have facilities. We have employees. Frankly, that's not what we do. How about if we contract with you and you become the TV station? How cool. And I'm going, really? And he says, yeah, I think we can work it out. I'll give you enough money to make sure all the bills get paid. But you manage it. You put together the programming. Which, if, frankly, covering city council and planning commissions was not high on my list of things I wanted to do, but it gave us the infrastructure bill to be able to set up a whole video unit. Yeah. And using those video resources, we were able to use them for the benefit of the restaurant group and the neighborhoods and the chamber and everyone else. So, again, what we're doing is cross-pollinating these various entities but the end result is to promote the Newport Beach brand on a global scale, using everyone's collective resources, breaking down silos, and fostering collaboration. And that's really what the whole thing was designed to do. So without having the org chart in front of our listeners, and I'm going to find a way to put it up as a link somewhere on DMOU.com, but as you described it to me seven, eight years ago when you were going through this, is that each one of these agencies have a budget and those budgets all then funnel up to Newport Beach and Company, which then does the programming. Yes. And to your point, they're all getting probably more marketing, more promotion, more management, more everything because you've taken away that layer of administration, correct? Absolutely. And we're able to extend their budget in ways that they were unable to do before. So let me go back to the restaurant group and give you an example. So with the restaurant group, they always had a restaurant week like a lot of communities, and they would basically have their budget and their plan of work, and that would be it. What we did is we said, fine, we will do all of that. But what we'll do is we'll bring the city's TV station in, do video packaging, not only run it on the city's TV station, but use that video content to put on the neighborhoods marketing uh, on the various neighborhoods, use it on the chamber site. So we were able to take various components and extend it. They wouldn't have been able to get that kind of reach on their own. They would have stayed in their silo. So what we did is we would take one effort and then spread it out at very minimal if any, cost to be able to do that. So the restaurant week message got much farther reach, but they didn't have to pay more for it. And it enriched the content. So the TV station, they got rich video content about the restaurant group that maybe they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. The neighborhood groups got profiles on restaurants in their neighborhoods. So that's great content that they wouldn't have gotten. And again, it helps promote restaurant week. So it's integrated, it's inclusive. And again, it breaks down silos and extends people's reach 
because everyone is kind of contributing something. I call it a marketing potluck. Everyone brings something to the table. But these groups all have to have a budget. And Bill, the other important thing is they all have to pay us. Now, I'm not saying they pay us a lot. In fact, if you know, if I was a businessman running a for-profit entity, I would essentially be giving away the store on a lot of this. All I want to do is cover my staff costs mm-hmm. because I am still a, a nonprofit organization. My job is to make sure that I can pay the bills, take care of my people, and execute good programming. So I don't compete against other marketing agencies that are vying for this business because they'll never charge what I'm going to charge. But I can get away with it still pay my bills and give these people good value. And that's important. Right. And I think it's important that they pay because people tend to value things that they pay for yep. versus Absolutely. things for free. So in any one of these discussions that we have in our communities about how we restructure, and we're going to have these conversations over the next 365 days for sure, where did ego come in or out of these conversations? Because I think that that's going to be one of the biggest issues if in fact we can make the case, as I tried to in, in the Z News commentary this past month, that the umbrella should be destination marketing. And just as we have a convention sales division and a sports sales division and a PR division, we should have an economic development division. Because economic development talks to a very, very small subset of the world, just as we do with convention sales, just as we do with sports sales, whereas a DMO talks to everybody. That's why in my mind, it makes perfect sense. But I can just see those folks in economic development saying, whoa, 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 you know, because they've kind of been running the the world, if you will, because communities understand economic development, at least they think they do, Mm -hmm. and they value it. And so they've kind of been in the catbird seat. So how do you deal with the ego? It still exists and it still was there. Uh, And I've always said what we're able to do, I don't know if it could be done in every single city because there are turf battles and established organizations that don't want to give up any authority whatsoever. But my argument would be economic development takes lots of different forms and it really depends on the community. Sometimes it's literally developing clean and safe programs and infrastructure issues and zoning and getting new business and all of that. But the important thing that is perhaps even the most important uh, thing in economic development is the perception of the destination and whether or not people are interested in hearing about it and going there. Our good friend Mara Gast has always said, right, that visiting a place is the first step in economic development, right? It is. Because people come, they see it, they say, this is a pretty nice place. I like to Mm -hmm. live here. But it has to be based on why did you go there in the first place? What drew you there? Was it because you heard great things about it, that uh, it had uh, a certain appeal about it? Maybe you were forced to go there, but then you discovered the charms. A lot of that all goes back to the central tenant of a destination brand and why that brand is so critical in terms of attracting not only visitors, but corporate relocations. And that's the thing that a lot of economic development entities don't do. They focused on the nuts and the bolts. They focus on incentives and trying to focus on redeveloping areas. But listen, if you don't want to go to a city, they can throw as much cash as you want you know, at you. You're not going to go there if you don't right. think your employees will want to live there, if you don't think you can make a viable business. And yes, I know there are other more tactical 
logistical issues involved in it, but the brand counts for a lot. And that's really what DMOs do better than anybody else. Because we've seen a lot of cities that you'd think, well, why aren't they successful? There are cities maybe in the Midwest, land is cheap. They have lots of people who need jobs, Mm -hmm. but why aren't they successful? Because frankly, a lot of people don't want to live there. That's why. So, you know, that's, that's part of where a DMO comes into play is explaining that reason why and what those, what makes those cities unique and appealing, because until you have an acceptance of that, you're not going to go into the deeper discussion of, okay, should I go there uh, for all these other reasons? If you think, oh, going there just kind of turns your stomach. That's the case study for Tulsa. Right. Right? I mean, Tulsa has been highly successful in getting investment from corporate Tulsa into their destination marketing organization because there's a pain point. Corporate Tulsa can't convince people to relocate there. Because if you've never been, and I got to tell you, I've been several times. I love Tulsa. It is sophisticated. It's a great music town. It's got a cool vibe down in the Blue Dome District. I mean, I, I love Tulsa. But people who've never been have, you know, they think they think there's tumbleweed going down the street, right? Yeah. And so that's what this is all about, is a destination marketing organization makes that point and or convinces somebody to bring a convention. And then you go to the convention and you go, oh, I had no idea, right? right? Exactly. And how yeah. many destinations have we discovered where, where you oh, yeah. just shocked and surprised it's like, who knew? I had no idea yeah. about this community and what it really had to offer. But until you can get past that, you can't have the more substantial discussions that I know like Tulsa wants to have, which is here's the available land, here are the tax incentives, here's the labor market, here's your tax rate and all the other affordable housing and all the other things that are come secondary if somebody says, uh, I'm not interested in it. So that's really where we come into play. And I'm glad we've had this yeah. discussion of merging economic development and tourism because we've always been a part of economic development. We've all, we have always been a more sophisticated aspect of economic development, but we kind of branched off and we kind of developed our own world. But the reality is we're trying to bring money into our communities. That is economic development. Yep. So let's, let's realize that. Absolutely. All right. Question number two. It's been seven years. So tell me the most rewarding aspect of changing to this new structure and what has been the most challenging. You know, I think the thing that I look back on, and we just had a meeting with the board of directors of the Restaurant Association today, in fact, and they got some supplemental funding from our city council last night. And the council has been very complimentary of how they govern and how they create value and and measurement and all that stuff. And those are things that I think, you know, our team has played a big role in. But going where they were, which was kind of, you know, this group that couldn't quite sit through a board meeting, they didn't know Robert's rules of order, and it was a little chaotic to the point where they're now working like a professional board. They have goals, they have accountability. To be able to see the development of these organizations because of what we've hopefully brought to the table, help them with a strategic plan. They had never even done a strategic plan before. And to be able to see people coming together and putting the destination first. One of the things I think I'm really blessed with, and I know you run into this when you deal with these dysfunctional boards that you have to deal with very often, is everyone kind of looks out for me versus looking out for us. 
And it's really about putting the destination first and thinking that way when you get into the room. Mm-hmm. You know, the evolution of this of this whole exercise, I think, really kind of came to an apex just in the last month or so because we had the police chief come to us and said, listen, you guys brand the destination. You brand all these entities. You do it in a way that we feel is very professional and thorough. Will you help us rebrand the police department and make it consistent with what you're doing on a citywide level? Wow. Now, I've never heard of that before where a DMO actually gets to rebrand a police department. And, you know, they wanted new graphics programs. They wanted their cars and the motorcycles wrapped differently. They want a new skin on their website. All of that's all of that. But they wanted it to be consistent with the way we're selling the community. So to get even non-marketing related people to understand and value the work that we've done, I think is probably one of the more gratifying aspects of it. The other part of it is from a city council perspective. And I know a lot of the DMOs, gosh, they're always struggling with that. You know, when I go in front of the city council every year to give my state of the industry and go over everything, the questions I get from council very rarely have to do with tourism. It usually has to do with all the other stuff we're doing. They want to know about the neighborhoods that happen to be in their districts that we're working on, or they want to know about restaurants, or they want to know about coverage that we're putting on the TV channel and, and the different types of programming. And I think what we've been able to do is help create a better value proposition for the organization because we're not just tourism people and some people have an appreciation for that and others don't, but they see us as a caretaker of the whole city. And that I think is, is kind of a, a great thing to have. And the most challenging side of it? Challenging part of it has been staffing. Now, you know, I can't tell you how many times we've redone the org chart because a lot of this falls to our marketing team. Now, you know, our BMO still relatively small. Before COVID, we were roughly about 25 people. We had, you know, about nine of them were in convention sales. The rest of it were all in marketing. We have a small group of us in admin. But trying to figure out how do you deploy people, uh, not from a DMO perspective, but how do you look at your organization like a marketing agency where there's someone who is the lead person who would be sort of like the county exec. So we have an account exec who works with one of the community groups and somebody else is an account exec who works with another community group. And how do you then manage the actual account and how do you execute on the programming? And what is the most efficient way to be able to do that? Because I kept looking for models of how do I copy this? How do you staff accordingly? Because it's very different. And I realized I just had to look outside the DMO world and look to professional marketing and ad agencies. How do you manage your accounts? How do you differentiate between client facing versus, mm-hmm. you know, behind the scenes execution of work? And how do you do that on a scale that you can financially sustain it? So that was probably the most difficult. And I think right before COVID, we kind of had it dialed in. And <laughs> now we're going to have to revisit it again. But those have been, the, I think, the biggest challenge. All right. Well, that's an interesting segue to the third question. And that is, in our conversations with DMO pros around the country over the past couple of COVID months, we're all talking a lot about reduced resources having to furlough, having to cut, having to reimagine what we're going to do going forward. And, you know, there may be some things that we've been doing forever that 
maybe it's time for the cutting room floor. Maybe it's time to let go of some of the things that we've done. I mean, if we can only do three things and we've been doing six, what are the three that get cut? And a number of our peers that I've been talking to have been reevaluating our role in convention and meeting sales. And it's not unlike what happened when Ali Best mm-hmm. took over Oakland in 2012, she found herself with six convention salespeople on staff that she inherited and 23 convention salespeople in the marketplace repping 10 hotels. And she said, this is just crazy. We don't need 29 people doing this. And so she pivoted, she flipped and turned her operation into more of a closer, more of a services, more of a, what can't you close today? Let me go out and see if, if our salespeople can find you a sponsor for the opening reception so that you can you know, knock out the competition or we can close a street for a street dance because we've got the contacts at City Hall and you don't as a hotel. So it's an interesting concept and one that w- was rewarded with a T-bid within a year or so that the hoteliers went, Dan, this is great. We really like this. You're doing great work. We didn't need you to be a lead farm. We needed you to help us close. Okay, so interesting thought. When you and I talked about this on the uh, on the pre-call, you're 180 degrees the other direction. You're saying that is the wrong thing to do right now because hotel sales staffs are being cut left and right, and hotels probably need us here more than ever. Tell us about that. They do. You know, during the last recession, we were updating our strategic plan, and one of the things the hotels told us that during even at that period, um, almost 10 years ago, they were saying, we are going to need more group sales. Now, in Newport Beach, we're all self-contained. We have no convention center. But the individual hotels, and I've got you know a lot of the major chains in, in my community as well, they were saying, we really need help with group sales because even 10 years ago, they were going to more regional-oriented approaches for group sales, less on-property talent. And so what would happen is you'd have Marriott having a regional approach to selling all the Marriott's in Orange County. Well, that sometimes works for Newport Beach, sometimes it doesn't. And the Newport Beach Hotel was saying, I need a little specific love here. So we actually created a T-bid. There you go. What was different about our T-bid is we created it with the exclusive sole purpose of funneling 100% of all that money into direct sales. And we said, listen, if if you want more sales, we'll create a T-bid. We'll take all that money. We won't put any of it towards marketing. That'll be because we still get TOT room tax. But we'll uh, put it all towards group sales. The hotels loved it. It also made it highly accountable, so we were able to show a real return on investment. And here we are 10 years later. Now, the hotels are telling us the trend that started during the last recession has only accelerated. I have one privately held hotel company in town. They went from 2,700 employees at three different properties to 400, literally overnight. That larger number included 70 sales and marketing professionals deployed across those three hotels. That company now has a total of five people for all three hotels. Mm. 
Wow. Marriott has gone through furloughs and the individual hotels have, have scaled back. So what they're saying to us now is, I've now lost all my salespeople. I've lost my entire sales budget. You, the DMO, I need you now more than ever. Yeah. Because while you were valuable before, now you're going to be the only thing between me and a room night because we just can't find another way of doing this. So we had to scale back a little bit on on group sales because of the funding issue, but we're still doubling down. Uh, and we focus on closing too. You know, we're not about necessarily lead generation. It's about working with the hotels and saying, what does it take to close that piece of business? That's one thing we share with Allie is focus on the bottom line. I want to deal in getting signed contracts. That's what our whole deal is about. That's what the hotels want. And we will do whatever we can do with the hotels. And it's highly customized. And the way we set up the T-bid is we have incentive marketing dollars. We have additional marketing dollars that they control, that they can spend any way they Mm-hmm. We include travel costs on trade shows. We cover all of their travel expenses to come on a trade show. So we make it really enticing for them to be a part of the TBID. They get great value. But right now, we're really the only marketing that they've got going. So it makes us so important. And you talk about relevancy and value proposition. This is really where it comes in, particularly during a crisis. Yeah. Fascinating. That's one of the reasons we wanted to have you on because I love the way you think. So time for the bonus round question. A lot of times when I'm uh, doing an icebreaker with a board of directors getting ready for a strategic plan, I'll ask the question for everybody to, you know, give me two or three minutes, you know, don't go long, but share with us one thing that nobody else in the room knows about you. (laughs) So, (laughs) so Share with us what nobody knows about you, Gary Sherwin. Well, Bill, I, um, <laughs> you know, I, I grew up in in Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley in the uh, shadows of Hollywood. And uh, as a young boy, my mom was uh, a single mom, and I kind of fell in love with television and the movies. And what was interesting is many of these TV shows and movies were made not far from where I was living. So with a friend of mine, we got the great idea that we were going to find a way to sneak into every single movie studio in the Los Angeles area. (laughs) Love it. And specifically, we wanted to get on the sets of our favorite TV shows. So we thought, how do you do that? So we went to a local newspaper uh, that was, you know, one of those that they just throw in your driveway. You don't subscribe to it when they were still doing that. And we said, listen, we're, you know, 13, 14 year old kids, but hey, we're going to come up with a free newspaper column for you uh, focused on somebody who lives here in the San Fernando Valley who's a celebrity. Will you run the piece? And they said, what the heck? I I need content. Why? So so we were off to the races. So what we would do is we would pick a show. We call up the PR department. We'd have them send us a press kit and we'd find somebody on the show, an actor, uh, who happened to live in the San Fernando Valley. And we called it Spotlight on a Valleyite. And uh, sure enough, all of these people took our bait. And we got to go on the set of, you know, I'm going to date myself here, but everything from All in the Family, Mary Tyler Moore, Kojak, The Waltons, you name it, in the 1970s. Wow. And what was funny is our you know, our parents, you know, my my mom or my friend's parents would drop us off at the studio gate. We'd walk in, they bring us on the set. And of course, they were expecting a grown up. 
And we would be showing up there as, you know, pimple faced kids with our little notepads. <laughs> and I remember we were on this, we went to see the very last Bob Newhart show and we got an interview with Suzanne Plachette. Oh, get out. And she walks up in a robe, a, literally a bathrobe. She has a cigarette, looks us up and down and goes, well, who are you? And it's like, we're the reporters here to interview you. And she said, for what? The junior high school newspaper? And I was like, no, 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 no. We're from the Valley News Green Sheet, and it's a column spotlight on a valleyite. And she went, okay. But they all sat through the interviews. We always did the stories. We always mailed them a clip. But we got to fulfill our TV fantasy of going and getting on all of these different studio lots. And what was great and what it taught me, by the way, is once we got on the lot and we did our business, then we would go roam the lot. And I learned an important thing that serves me to this day, Mm -hmm. that if you walk around and act like you belong somewhere, no one will mess with you. So That's right. I totally agree. <laughs> so I didn't walk around like a starstruck kid. I would walk around like I, you know, was the studio mogul's son. And we'd walk into sound stages and we had a very determined look on our face. And, you know, we'd wag our fingers and then we'd walk on. And meanwhile, I'm going, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm on the set of this show or this movie or what have you. Now, by the way, Steven Spielberg did the same thing, only he was even more ingenious. He actually went in and set up shop in a office on Universal Studios lot and pretended that he worked there. Now, he did infinitely better in his career than I've ever done in mine, <laughs> but he had the same idea. Now, oh yeah, you know, sneaking into studio lots, you can't really do that very well today, but it was fun growing up being able to do that. So That is great. So besides Suzanne, who I had the biggest crush on when I was a kid, I'm sure you did too. So what are some of the other names that you had a chance to interview? Oh, boy. Pretty much the cast of of All in the Family, uh, One Day at a Time, Good Times. You know, there was a, I I will tell you on on the old Bob Newhart show, there was a wonderful character. His name was Mr. Carlin. He was one of Bob's patients. And some of these people they didn't care that we were kids. They were just the most genuinely nice people. On Kojak, uh, Telly Savalas' brother, George, was his co-star. And of course, Telly got all the yeah. glamour. And Telly, frankly, wasn't a really nice guy. But George, the fact that he was going to have an article written about him in an even throwaway newspaper delighted him beyond belief. And he spent the whole day with us. Sometimes people would take us to the commissary. Sometimes they would drive us around, show us uh, different things. I mean, I remember after we did the uh, Mary Tyler Moore show, oh, wow. we were sitting on the curb outside the studio waiting for the uh, our parents to pick us up. And the director rode up and he recognized us. He said, uh, do you guys need a lift home? I mean, it's like, yeah, fine. He says, yeah, come on, hop in. I'll take you home. It was the director of the show. <laughs> so it was it was kind of fun. But it, it taught me a lot about uh, ingenuity and uh, persuasion <laughs> and how to be a professional when you don't really know how to be a professional. <laughs> what a great story. Hey, Gary, thank you so much. Uh, love the way you think. Thanks also for the way that you share as an instructor for uh, CDME. And thanks for your leadership at Destinations International and in California. We are all richer for your vision um, and your friendship. So thanks so much. Thank you, Bill. It's been an honor being with you.
Oh, not at all. Hey, that's it for this edition of DMOU. Tell your friends and peers that this is where the best and the brightest get together to tell inspiring stories for DMO pros. Thanks, too, to our sponsor, 2.6 Digital, a full-service agency that offers integrated marketing solutions exclusively to destination marketing organizations and members of the travel, tourism, and hospitality sectors. Dave Serino, Brian Matson, and the 2.6 team assist DMOs with developing measurable and successful digital marketing strategies. You can find them at 2.6digital.com. DMOPros.com is where you're going to find more on our services for the DMO world, plus links to past episodes of the Z News, our Knowledge Bank, with videos and blogs, and the biggest DMO job board on the planet, not to mention links to earlier episodes of DMOU. That's DMOPros with a Z.com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time.